This show is part of the RetroZap.com podcast network. You will never find the more wretched hive of scum and villainy. We must be cautious. Hey guys, Suara here. Welcome to Beltway Banthas, your source for Star Wars and political news and analysis from our nation's very own hive of scum and villainy, Washington, D.C. This week, you'll be listening to my conversation with Mike Cooper, the editor-in-chief of the Star Wars website 1138. For those of you who don't know, 1138 is an ongoing journal of news and opinion dedicated to chronicling the state of the Star Wars franchise that, quote, in a way that eschews reactionary news posting in favor of long, more considered pieces with a proactive mindset. Stephen and I have been fans of this site for years. Mike Cooper runs a really great operation and brings in some really talented writers who are very passionate Star Wars fans to basically delve deeper into the state of the Star Wars franchise and conduct robust analysis of uh, news that's going on in the real world with Star Wars or in-universe analyses of characters, of plots, of governments. For our longtime listeners, you may have heard um, our Stephen's conversation with Admiral Nick um, of 1138 chronicling the uh, geography of the New Republic. So those are the sort of uh, deep insights that 1138 goes into. In a lot of ways, it really correlates with what we do here at Beltway Banthas. And Mike is a fan and uh, was very happy to come on, and we were so happy to have him on. Uh, We discussed uh, various aspects of Star Wars and fandom. We talked about um, the creative process that goes into Star Wars, the political message that George Lucas was aiming for with the prequel films. We talked even a bit about the politics of fandom itself and what gets people riled up about certain topics. This is a really delightful conversation to have with Mike. He's a really, really smart guy and... He's smart on all things Star Wars and politics as well. He's very keenly interested in that. In fact, as you'll hear us discuss on the podcast, he has two separate Twitter accounts. The, his uh, account for the site, at 1138, all spelled out, and his other Twitter account, at, at the other left, where he discusses more political stuff on Twitter. And uh, everyone absolutely should follow Mike on both of those accounts and follow the work he and the rest of the illustrious 1138 uh, writers are doing on the site. It's a really fantastic analysis if you're into, you know, kind of like the same stuff we talk about here on Beltway Banthas. You know, the sort of intersection of serious analysis and our favorite fictional franchise. So I'd like to also plug uh, some podcasts that Stephen and I have recently recorded and that will be available soon. Stephen was recently on our fellow retrozapper Jason Flatt's podcast, Holy Star Wars. I don't believe that episode has come out, but it should come out either in the next couple of days or perhaps next week. And I, just last night, recorded with our friends at the Imperial Senate podcast, Charlie Ashby and Nikki Kumar, on last night's breaking news that Colin Trevorrow has been ousted as the director of episode 9. I've made my feelings uh, clear on this topic before. I didn't think he was a right fit for the film, and 
I am very happy about this news. And if you tune into the Imperial Senate podcast, you'll hear a really great discussion with my friends Charlie and Nikki and our friend Emma on what we make of this news, how we all feel about it, and what we see next going with episode nine. And uh, yeah, we'll be back with a regular main topic episode next week. And hope you all stay tuned for that. And Here's my conversation with Mike Cooper. All right. Thanks, guys. And here I am speaking with Mike Cooper, the editor-in-chief of the illustrious Star Wars website, 1138. It delves into everything going on in the Star Wars saga, the politics of it, the uh, storytelling, the uh, novels, the movies, and it's such a great website that, um, Mike, I'll just tell you, Stephen and I love the work y'all do. It's really fantastic. Um, How are you doing tonight, man? Uh, I'm great. Thanks a lot for saying so. I know you guys. I follow you guys as well. I'm not a huge podcast person, but I do. I do love that there's a politics in Star Wars podcast. That made me very happy when I was aware of you guys. And so the feeling, the feeling is mutual, and I'm happy to be here. Well, we're we're so happy to have you. Um, but you know, I gotta ask, who am I talking to right now? Am I talking to Mike? Am I talking to the website? I know you have two different Twitters. Who am I'm so confused. <laughs> So I humor the website thing, but I don't really see myself as having two personas or anything like that. I, I started out originally with just the 1138 account, and every once in a while I would want to make a comment about politics or like I would be live tweeting Game of Thrones or something like that. And <laughs> I just, I didn't, I wasn't really concerned about it, but I felt like I didn't want to limit my Star Wars audience by having, by forcing people to experience the entirety of my personality via that one account that was supposed to exist for promoting the website. So I started to do anything that wasn't Star Wars on my personal one. So if people are interested in me as a person and as a broad voice on various topics and they can follow me personally, but the website is still, I don't know. It's funny. It's still a promotional. It exists. That account exists to promote 1138. That is sort of the voice of the site, but I use it. I don't really think about that consciously. I still tweet about tweet from it as myself and I still talk about my own opinions from Star Wars I don't think I don't stop and think well does the site feel this way it's not that kind of a thing I I guess I can I don't really think I forget it's easy to forget that the name at the top of the account is 1138 so I just think about it as I'm tweeting as myself and I forget that that probably can seem weird to somebody who is on the other end of that conversation like they're talking to a website but it's mostly it's mostly Eric Geller's fault he started calling me (laughs) to needle me and it caught on, and I, I humor it. I don't really mind it, but it's not. It's not an intentional thing. It's just something that's happened. I mean, I think it's hilarious. I love it. And um, yeah, Eric Geller is the one who always calls you website. And some of our Twitter interactions, I've tried doing that as well. You know, maybe not successfully. I don't have the same flair as Geller. Like, <laughs> I mean, you actually, you most and Eric. Of the, most of the times that I mean to Geller at this point is just revenge for website. Obviously. Yeah, obviously. <laughs> well, yeah, I mean, like, uh, everyone really should follow uh, 1138, uh, the Twitter account. You know, you find the links to the. Uh, many articles that are on the site and uh, also from your like really witty commentary on the state of Star Wars but you know let's get into the uh, let's do a deep dive right now I'm curious what is the origin of your Star Wars fandom like when did you first see Star Wars and um, what was your favorite film growing up or what's your favorite film now and who's your favorite character now or who has been for so long (laughs) 
Uh, well, I didn't. It's funny. Growing up, my favorite movies were Back to the Future. I was not actually into Star Wars as a kid. What? I didn't have. I didn't have. I grew up with a single mother, and she was not very genre aware. She wasn't the type of parent who would take me to Star Wars and things like that of her own volition. Mm. And so I wasn't really exposed to it. I happened to see. I got into Back to the Future because it was. It just happened to be on TV more, I guess, and I would see it on TV once once a month or so. But I finally got into Star Wars when the special editions came out, at which point I was 15. And I didn't know much about it, but I was I was old enough to sort of have a bit of a sci-fi interest. And so I asked my mom to take me to them, and we did. And it was a love affair ever since. That's really and one. Yeah. I think it's, I like, I kind of, I, I wear it as a badge of honor that I came to Star Wars late because I think I'm able to, I don't have those cherished memories of being eight years old playing with Luke Skywalker action figures and I'm able to I like to think that I'm able to see it with a little more clear vision because of that and I don't take things as seriously and I don't I don't have that childhood aspect that I feel the need to protect that's really interesting it's like you don't have that nostalgia factor that comes into it I think uh, for someone like me, I grew up with the originals and then the prequels. Um, you know, I'm a 90s kid and somehow, you know, most 90s kids have the prequels as their first films. Mine were actually original trilogy, but still, um, it's I know so much about the nostalgia factor that really holds on to a lot of the Star Wars fandom. And I think... Um, you know, that you see this debate like happen in fandom about the prequels, whether they were good or not. Uh, you know, I hope this is a conversation we can finally get past because now, hey, we can settle it. This is Star Wars. You know, some people like it, some people don't, and that's fine. But, um, it's, uh, yeah, you never really had that um, gripe, that sort of grip on you, like that nostalgia factor. And do you think that's really contributed to your ability to judge the, or analyze and uh, be critical of the series as a whole? I like to think so. I did. It's funny because I have, I'm not too different from a, some, some, from a person who grew up with the original trilogy. I, I did see them first, so it's not quite the same as being the prequel generation, mm-hmm. but... I only really had a couple of years to live with them before the prequels came along, and so I yeah, didn't, same. Yeah. I didn't have much time to really settle into what I thought the stories were about and what I thought. I didn't have a pre-existing notion of exactly how Anakin fell to the dark side and things like that, and so I think I was more... When the prequels were coming out, I was more receptive to that because I was... The focus of my, of my fandom up to that point had been the expanded universe, which was mostly after the movies. So I had preconceived ideas of what the New Republic and all that was going to be about and what kind of kids Han, Han and Leia would have. Yeah. But the prequels I just sort of took as they came. I, I enjoyed them at the time. I've, got, I've come to like The Phantom Menace a lot more as an adult and, and like episodes two and three less mm-hmm. as an adult. But I generally speaking, I never... I don't recall really being especially disappointed with any of them at the time they came out. It just sort of... It was what it was. They had highs and lows and even even when i first got into star wars like the special editions i'm obviously i have i don't i'm not hung up on things like han shot first because han shooting first was the first version i saw i didn't know it any other way but even that said there are things that i can look at analytically in the special editions that i don't care for or that i don't think were necessary but i don't have i never got it never became totally set in my mind one way or another and so i, I got my, I came to Star Wars with once it started being changed, being edited. So I, I've see, I see yeah. it as a, like the Constitution, I see it as a living document. Oh my God, I love that analogy. Like it is, it is always changing, it is always evolving. And 
Um, yeah, I think that's a parallel we need to like make a note of here at Beltway Banthas. Like Star Wars is like the Constitution in that it always changes. And, you know, there's been this discussion about whether George Lucas had a journal of the wills that mapped everything out. And basically he didn't. I mean, he was really making up. Yeah, <laughs> like he was making up a lot of stuff as he was going along, but for the better. You know, there were a lot of like great uh, aspects of storytelling and characters he had in there. And much like the Constitution, like I'm of the political persuasion that the Constitution is absolutely a living document. Um, you know, I can do without the Scalia school of thought. And I definitely like to think of Star Wars the same way. Uh, but I want to go back to like the topic of your favorite film. And you were mentioning The Phantom Menace. Uh, what makes it your favorite of the prequels? Uh, it's the most consistent. It's not, it doesn't have the same highs. Like I think the, the best parts of two and three are better than anything in Phantom Menace, but they, they vacillate more between really high Mm. stuff and really crappy stuff. Like the romance stuff. I, it's mostly the romance stuff. That's what it boils down to. I can't, I can barely sit through a lot of the Anakin and Padme scenes in in two and three, but Phantom Menace is more, it's like a, rather than going between a nine and a two and a nine and a two, it sits at like a six or a seven the whole time. So like Jar Jar is not great and little, and Jake Lloyd is not great, but none of the, none of that is to the point that I want to walk away from the screen. And then the good stuff is not as exciting as some of the stuff in two and three. Like I like, I like the Obi-Wan Grievous stuff a lot in three and I like Camino a bit. I like Django Fett for the most part, but so if I can ask about episode one, what do you think of the politics of that film? Um, as a kid and growing up later, did they make sense to you? Do they make sense to you nowadays? Well, I was I was 17 when Phantom Menace came out. I was old enough to more or less get it. I wouldn't say that that was an appeal for me. I wasn't thinking, yay, taxation. I can't wait to find out more about that. But I didn't, I don't know. I thought, I, I feel like I followed it well enough. I appreciate it more. I think a lot of the appreciation I have now is because of what happened in the expanded universe, especially with James Lucino, who did a lot to texture in the story before and after the movies and how all the things that Sidious was doing behind the scenes, which I couldn't really get into at the time. Like that was one thing that when, when Phantom Menace came out and going into attack of the clones, those three years and those three years in real life when that was going on is that they were being coy about whether or not Sidious and Palpatine were the same person. And so even though it was pretty clear what was going on, they couldn't, give us the real backstory to it and they couldn't explain it. And so you would have to just sort of infer a lot, which was exciting as a fan to be able to sort of infer, to have to piece things together. But Right, right. Yeah, instead of having the twist, like, delivered to you and, you know, it's not a shocking moment at all in Episode 3 when Palpatine reveals himself to Anakin. I mean, it's made pretty explicitly clear, even towards the beginning of Episode 3, that basically he is Sidious and he's trying to persuade Anakin to the dark side. I guess that's uh, maybe a different sort of uh, storytelling that George Lucas was trying then. You know, with Episode 5, it was the big twist, the big shocker at the end, but uh, the prequels were more about trying to make the audience think, you know, about the deeper layers to what's going on in this galaxy. But let's actually get into more of this. You know, how do you think, you know, in the prequels, in the original trilogy, um, in George Lucas's vision specifically, how do you think politics informed Star Wars? What was George Lucas trying to tell his audience, for example, about dictators and democracies? And I actually want to bring up a quote that George Lucas had in 1999 uh, in a 
uh, interview with the New York Times, he says, um, that's sort of why I say a benevolent despot is the ideal ruler. He can actually get things done. The idea that power corrupts is very true, and it's a big human who can get past that. Like, he actually says that maybe he likes a benevolent dictatorship. We've gone back and forth on this at Beltway Banthas. So what do you think is the real story here? Uh, I'm going to be probably a contrarian in this. I really don't care what he thinks he was trying to do. I don't think, I think he, first of all, like, as you said, we, he didn't have the whole story in mind when he started out. I think he started, it started out, he wanted to tell a hero's journey kind of story in space. That was all, that was all he had in mind. Or he wanted to do even uh, a, a young boy. What's, what was the race, the car racing movie? The Which movie? His car racing movie. Oh, um, car racing movie. Was it American, <laughs> American Graffiti? He wanted to do American Graffiti mixed with the hero's journey, mixed with spaceships. I think that was the inciting idea. And I think as it went on and he realized he was going to be able to do a bigger story, I think he wanted to tell a story about humanity as a whole. And I think politics comes out of that, but I think I don't think he has... Maybe he, he's happy to talk about He's He's happy to layer on a political message in interviews, but I don't think... I think he, he's changed his mind enough over the decades that I don't see much reason in paying, putting too much weight in any one interview that he gives because depending on which movie he's talking about he might have an entirely different message but I think the, the message that I take from the saga is, is more one with about humanity as a whole and the light side and the dark side of individuals and politics spills out of that naturally but I think the best thing about the movies and even the prequels is that they don't, they're not too heavy handed in their, in their political messaging and you can read different things into it depending on like for one thing one thing that's been that I've been debating with people a lot lately is about is Vader's redemption and the idea that what does it mean to be redeemed and can you can you turn back to the light side but not necessarily be forgiven like does does one good act make up for a lifetime of bad bad actions and I don't think Star Wars has as much as Luke Skywalker is sort of the point of view character I don't think Star Wars comes down on one side of the fence specifically or not the other I think Luke forgave Vader I don't think Leia would have. I don't think Leia necessarily ever did. Like one thing that's changed yeah. a lot in the reboot and since if you read Bloodline is that decades later she had never really come to terms with it. She just sort of pushed it aside and didn't think about it. Yeah. And I think that's one of the best things about Star Wars is that even something like that with where fans themselves can debate that whether or not whether Anakin was really redeemed or not. Yeah. Even within the story, yeah. I think the Luke and Leia don't necessarily agree on what on what happened to Vader and I think that's I like that the narrative does not conclusively. It, it doesn't. I don't think we're meant to believe. It, the narrative is on Luke's side to some extent because the, the Force did take Vader back and he became Anakin again. So you could say that the Force is on Luke's side, but at the same time, I don't think we're meant to take away that Leia is wrong. Oh yeah, absolutely not. Because Vader was space Hitler. He killed billions of people essentially you know he was participatory in the destruction of Alderaan he you know by all accounts during his life he was a real monster and I think when it comes from me on this I think you know I have like seen the online on this debate discussion and I personally do take the you know quote traditional uh point of view that Vader was redeemed that he was uh, brought back to the light side and for the love of his son essentially what um george lucas was espousing but i don't think um redemption as you say necessarily equals forgiveness or equals um 
you know, there can be such a, yeah, yeah. Like there can be such a thing, I think, as personal redemption where you come to terms with yourself and the terrible things that you've done, but being redeemed in society, being redeemed in a community, being redeemed in the face of your children, for example, with Vader is an entirely different thing. And it's a, you know, I think it's something that relates to politics in a way, you know, sort of how we interpret each other and how we forgive each other maybe for points of, unfortunately, some unsavory points of view some of us might have and whether someone can grow out of that, if you understand, like, my point of view there. Yeah, I remember when, around when The Force Awakens came out and Star Wars was the big story again, there was a slew of think pieces about, actually, the Empire was not that bad, maybe the Death Star had a point, things (laughs) like that, and I think it seems so obvious to us that it's telling one political message, but I think the the best thing about Star Wars is that everybody sees something that they understand in it. Even if they're even if we're on totally different opposite different sides of the political spectrum, we can find something to go, yeah, see this story agrees with me. I think that's the best that's the best compliment you can pay is that everybody thinks it agrees with them. Yeah, yeah, exactly, exactly. Um, yeah, there are just so many different ways to interpret it. And I've always said one of the greatest things about Star Wars is that it is really for everyone, that everyone, almost everyone I've met in my life has found something to enjoy from Star Wars. But in that as well is that people can interpret and take what they want, they can, or what they want maybe sometimes from Star Wars. I think there are some really core essential messages in there about being good and being um, kind and compassionate to your fellow sentient beings. But, you know, I think that even in there, there's so much varying interpretation, just like we have in our own politics. You know, you've got like liberal Star Wars fans, conservative Star Wars fans, libertarian Star Wars fans, um, you know, like, people all over the political spectrum who take something from that. So, um, yeah, I think, uh, yeah, you really hit the nail on the head there, like talking about, um, how it is constantly interpretable. And I think it's a big, it's a big misconception that people have that star Wars is a very black and white and the the lines are drawn and the good, the the empire is absolute evil and the rebels Mm. are absolute good. But if there's one thing, if there's one unifying thing that it's about, I think it's the fact that the lines are not that clear and that there are elements of good within the darkness and there are elements of darkness within the good. And Luke and Vader are that, a representative of that. Luke, Luke has his moments where he gives in to the dark side, even if only briefly, and Vader gives in to the light at the end. And I think they're mirror they're images of each other, and I think that's what really the story is about, is about that dichotomy more than it's about the Empire has this abstract idea of total evil. Totally. And, you know, I'll just, you mentioned Luke being a mirror image of his father. I think, you know, as a kid, um, I heard uh, Steel Wars talk about this um, in one of his episodes. Uh, we love to think of Luke as, you know, the awesome hero and, you know, he's a badass. He's just saving his friends. And then, you know, I've heard people say um, nowadays that, uh, Luke, um, oh, he's choking Gamerian guards. He's acting super aggressive. He's killing Java. And I would initially react to that and be like, what? What are you talking about? Luke is the hero. He's just being a badass. But then I remember, oh, wait, are Jedi supposed to use the force like this to attack? And so, a badass, badass is not a heroic description. 
<laughs> exactly. Or maybe badass is the dark side. <laughs> um, yeah, like, are we supposed to, uh, like, you know, really understand from that, you know, Luke's also dressed in all black. I thought that was just cool as a kid, but again... Yeah, that's definitely, I mean, that's yeah. just looking at it from a filmmaking standpoint. That's, that's Lucas trying to telegraph. We don't know exactly where Luke is, what headspace he's in at this point. Maybe he will turn to the dark side. They need to do... He needed to do everything he could in that movie to convince people that maybe he would actually join Palpatine or join Vader. Right, right. I mean, like... He actually does have some part of him that would like to do it. Yeah, I mean... We take for granted, it's been 40 years or whatever, we take for granted that he didn't in the end, but in the moment when that movie came out, you you have to believe that he could have gone just as bad as Anakin was. Yeah, that was absolutely the point of the film, with Palpatine trying to goad him to the dark side, and nearly succeeding before you know I think I I interpret my interpretation is that Luke's love for his father and realizing the parallels you know when he's looking at his mechanical hand and Vader's chopped off mechanical hand he realizes those parallels and is able to hold himself back and declare that he's a Jedi so yeah it's uh you know there's always so much to interpret in there and it's this is why I love Star Wars like you can talk about it constantly and always find some sort of new conclusion or lessons. So, um, you know, let's uh, dive into like the real world for a second. Let's just talk about the website. You know, I think, as I mentioned at the beginning of the show, I think 1138 is one of the most detailed, insightful, and overall really deep websites out there on Star Wars. You know, y'all cover everything from the politics to you know, aspects of feminism and inclusion. Uh, you do deep dives on all the characters. Like, you know, I recently read some great pieces by Mark Eldridge on Qui-Gon Jinn and, oh, also by Mark Eldridge on uh, Kylo Ren. Um, and, you know, on storytelling and on the force. And you guys have such uh, deep, nuanced takes, you know, from all of your writers. And I'm just curious, how did the site begin? What was your vision from it? And, also, how do you think it helps build bridges in the Star Wars community? Uh, that was that was what you just descri- described. It was my vision for it, so it's great to hear that that's your your perspective of the site. I really appreciate that. Uh, I wanted I I originally a long time ago I was a, I was a staff writer for theforce.net, so I had done I had done news posting for a while, and I got out of that about ten years ago now. And I was just, I was mostly, my most of my Star Wars online existence was in the, the literature boards at theforce.net and with Expanded Universe fandom. And I, what happened was that I knew when the reboot, or not when the reboot was announced, but when the Disney purchase was announced, I could, I sort of, I had one of these moments of clarity where I knew I didn't necessarily know the reboot was going to exist in the way that it did, but I felt when they said, the second they found out, I found out there was an episode seven coming out, I knew that there was going to be some kind of reconciling with the Star Wars that I had known from the expanded universe for the last 15 years or so with whatever this new movie was going to be. And I, I saw a scenario where there was going to be a lot of new fans coming in mm. from the movies and saying, what are these books? What does this matter? Who's Jason Solo? I've never heard of this person. Why does that matter? And I wanted to... The, the inciting thing that I wanted 1138 to do was sort of establish that EU fandom had a place in this era, whether or not there was a full reboot, which was, was not super positive, but I seemed, seemed likely at the time. I wanted to establish that we had, 
we had seen every every whatever the whatever movie the sequel trilogy ended up telling, we had seen some form of it in the books already. Like they had done in forty years of books and forty years in continuity, even they had told every version of a post Return of the Jedi story you could come up with, and so we right. that that knowledge, even if even if the details and the continuity was not going to maintain, there was there was knowledge in there, there was understanding of what works and what doesn't work, and what elements can you take from here and what elements can you take from there. And I thought I wanted. I didn't want the EU fandom's place in the conversation after after the sequel trilogy started to be relegated to is it still canon or not because I didn't really expect it to be canon but even if it wasn't there was still things to gain from that and that's why one of the first ongoing series that we did at the site was called Escape Pod which was about singling out a single character or a single element from the EU that we thought should make of the leap to a potential reboot if it happened because we thought it had some sort of essence or some some vital part of Star Wars that was important that was not already represented in the movies that the, the EU brought to it. Like One that's become very relevant recently that I did over three years ago now was actually about hujibs, which were these weird little <laughs> telepathic bunny creatures in the Marvel comics from ages and ages ago. And the point that I made was not so much that hujibs exactly as they exist, this thing needs to be in the movies exactly the way it is in the comics, because that's unrealistic anyway, but... The point that I was, the underlying point that I was making in that article was that Star Wars always has little weird, whimsical, cute elements in it. Like people, people talk about Ewoks as being the first thing that was cute, but really there was stuff like that all along. There were things and there were elements of Tatooine that were whimsical and sort of weird. And like Banthas are like that. Banthas are a whimsical animal, and I think I like the I like the idea that that's something that's important, and there should always be. You shouldn't get too serious and too grizzly, griddle, grizzled with yeah. Star Wars it's not it's not really sci-fi it's not supposed to be that serious there should be things that are just kind of ridiculous and bonkers like all some of the creatures like the big Tweety Bird guys in Maz Kanata's castle are a good example of something that's totally nuts and now we have Porgs are yeah. great Porgs are I don't know I hope I hope they talk I don't think I don't, I don't get the sense that they talk but what, they don't talk know, I don't think in terms of the Hujib thing Hujibs actually talk with I believe British accents, which is perfect. What? So, nothing more than to find out that Porgs had British accents. <laughs> oh my god! Uh, wow. I, first off, I did not know that Hoojibs talked. <laughs> Actually, the only uh, other place I've heard about Hoojibs is from our uh, fellow podcast and our podcast network, uh, Skywalking Through Neverland. Uh, Richard and Sarah Wolowski are really trying to get Hoojibs to be canon I you know should give a like drop for that here um but yeah um no you're totally right I mean that's something you know guess what so Return of the Jedi is my personal favorite film and one of the things I really like about it is Ewoks you know I you know honestly I feel like the hate like the supposed hate for Ewoks is actually like really overblown like people were saying that they're the Jar Jar of uh, the late early '80s, but I don't think the hate was ever anywhere near like what it. I guess like you know whatever hate there is like towards a certain thing is definitely amplified by the internet, by social media, by you know like just like uh, people being able to communicate more with each other. But I never felt like I never really encountered anyone who actually hated Ewoks. Have you? Uh. I, I know people who were about my age who did grow up with the movies and remember they remember not liking them. Okay, but fair enough. It's hard to say. I mean, I don't think to hate Ewoks in 1983 is not the same as to hate Porgs would be now because you don't have the vehicle to express that hatred 30 years ago. There was no... You couldn't go on Twitter and bitch about them. 
Yeah, exactly. Nah. It, was, it was a different thing. Like, I, would, I wouldn't, especially given that I wasn't even in the Star Wars fandom at that point, and if I had been, I would have been two years old. I wouldn't, I wouldn't really deign to say there was or wasn't as much hatred, but it was not, it was muted because it was not, it was, there wasn't, fandom didn't have that kind of microphone that it does now. Right, exactly. I, I, would, I would imagine that there's a, there's a, I think there's a contingent of Star Wars fans that don't like cute things. And it's as simple as that. And if it's yeah. not that, if it's not them, it'll be Jar Jar or it'll be Porgs or whatever. I'm waiting for, I'm waiting for someone to write a nasty article about Porgs. It'll happen. How could you ever write a nasty article about Porgs? They're the puffins of the Star Wars universe. They're brilliant. Uh, sorry, I don't want to be so like uh, decisive. You know, obviously everyone should have their own opinions about Porgs. Like you know, I've been, I've been even though I was not a fan as a young child I've been around enough to see multiple generations and it seems like the same every generation has the same proportions of people whether it's the EU fans or whether it's prequel fans or whether it's Clone Wars fans or now Rebels fans or sequel fans within each within each generation there are people who are unreasonable about one thing unreasonable about another thing like there's there's the, the, the topic changes but the people are the same I think the human nature yeah. at least the human, especially human nature among fans is consistent I think across you, the decades and it's just different yeah. the, the focus is different I think you really hit the nail on the head there it really is the fact that fan the, you know fandom is everyone fandom is people Fan, you're gonna get so many different types of people that have different tastes and like different things or may complain about different things I think the problem you see it's okay to like have your own opinion but I think our problem is communication about that. And so like maybe someone saying like they don't like porgs will be perceived to be like, oh, this person hates porgs or it's just acting like someone would towards the Ewoks or Jar Jar. No, this guy just happens not to like cute things and that's fine and just is expressing his opinion. But you know, what I don't like is when people are, when those people who don't like the cute thing may attack others. You know, essentially the same thing we see over and over over again, attacking someone for having an opinion on a product of fiction. And it's just like, grow up, you know? Yeah, I think I'm, I said this too when we were working on your piece. Sort of the, it started, the site started out mostly from that EU point of view, is I wanted to keep the EU in the conversation. But more than that, I wanted to show that you could be, if people who grew up with the EU were not all what became known, what didn't exist then, but now you would call them Bring Back Legends people, people who are totally, totally radicalized about it and refuse to engage with anything that's coming out because it's not Legends. I wanted to establish that you could be an EU kid and not be like that and be reasonable about it and understand the realities of the reboot and what was going to what they had to do to make new movies. And I think what came out of that that I sort of found over the course of a few years as I was doing the site, one of what I would what I would describe now as one of our editorial premises is, it's not what you think; it's how intense you are about it. You can, I'm willing to engage and willing to publish even all sorts of ideas that sorts sorts of opinions that I don't necessarily agree with. But I think if if you can if you can make your case reasonably and not get too upset about it and not shout people down if they disagree with you, then I think that's more important than what you actually think. Like, I don't, I personally think it's likely that Kylo Ren will be redeemed, mm-hmm. but if he's not, I'm not going to freak out about it. Right. I think a lot of people, I think that that's something that I see coming now that I think is going to be a giant potential rift if, whether or not he becomes good again, because there are people that just can't get their heads around the possibility of that. 
they can they're, they're yeah. realistic they can say well this is the thing star wars does it could happen but they would hate it they would absolutely hate it and i think the important thing yeah it's fine to have preferences it's fine to have opinions the important thing is to be reasonable about them and have have perspective and have a sense of proportionality absolutely and you know i'll just let you know or like our listeners know like well, first off, like, thank you for plugging my piece on 1138. Yeah, guys, uh, I had... Well, I'm here to plug. <laughs> yeah, well, you were the one that plugged it first, man. Yeah, I was just saying it was a, a good for Star Wars fans to be constructively critical. And, but, you know, I hope you all check it out. Um, but also, I, um, you know, this thing you're talking about, um, how you voice your opinions, um, how worked up you get over it, honestly, and you know actually better than most people, this is actually a problem that I've had, uh, particularly in regards to Kylo Ren, you know, coming out of The Force Awakens, I was like, I hate this character, I hate this guy, I want Rey to defeat him, I want, you know, like, I think he's a, a person. I hate him too, but that's great. Yeah, yeah. I'm so thrilled that we hate Kylo Ren. Exactly. No, he's heard out of our minds. You see, this is the thing for me, too. Like, now I am thrilled that I hate him. I think I wasn't so receptive to... Honestly, like, what I was doing was I was making Kylo Ren, like, uh, my ideal of, like, uh, a patriarchal and entitled evil being that Rey, as a feminist hero, would strike down. And I thought I was so absolute in this vision. I just felt like, oh, everyone is obviously going to believe this, but... Then I encountered people online that, hey, actually disagree with this, that maybe even if Kylo Ren is like this, he could still be redeemed. This is one of the messages of Star Wars, that redemption is possible for anyone. And actually, when you compare the body count at this point, you know, based on what we know between Kylo Ren and his grandfather, Darth Vader, you know, there's no comparison. Darth Vader was the monster. He was the right. uh, tyrant. We love kill Han. We love Han. That's what really matters. <laughs> <laughs> exactly. Actually, what do you think about that? The fact that um, people, including myself, <laughs> to be honest, see the view, the killing of Han as an irredeemable, you know, uh, point of no return. Well, there's that, and there's the uh, the mind invasion thing, which has a lot of obvious connotations that people don't care for, which I can respect as a point of view. But I'm, I, I I worry about what that's going to mean if he does eventually come back but I would say the thing that I try to keep in mind is that there's a difference between him turning back to the light side and him actually being a good guy and being forgiven by anybody in the universe real in real life or in Star Wars like I don't think someone I don't remember who it was but someone asked me just earlier would you think the resistance would actually forgive him because I had mentioned him being redeemed and I said no god no I think actually that would be a fascinating story because I think Leia would I think even oh, yeah. not, Leia would forgive him and the tension between the founder of the resistance wanting to work with the guy that was one of the key figures of the resistance and the rest of and the average, like the grunts of the, the grunt soldiers in the organization thinking, why the hell are we working with this guy? Right, like, right. I think that's, that would be fascinating for the founder of the resistance to be ostracized, not ostracized, but to be, to have that tension with their own organization because it's our kid. Yeah. That's, that's what, it, that's what it should be what it's about. Like that's, that's fascinating to me. And especially what we were saying before about whether or not she would have forgiven Vader if she ever did forgive Vader. I don't really think she did. She never did. But, no. But her son is her son. Is she going to, she seems, she's perfectly happy to bring him back. Totally. Yeah. So I, that's, I think it's fascinating to me. Does Leia come around on Vader by, by virtue of her experience with Ben? Oh, man, I just got to say, this just makes me so much more sad that, 
I don't think we're ever going to, I doubt it's going to happen or I know maybe it'll happen episode eight, but I don't think it's, no, it's, I don't think it will. I think episode nine was going to be this storyline in some sort of uh, manner where Leia, it would be Leia and her son and maybe them reconciling or confronting each other and Leia dealing with that exact dilemma you're talking about. But Mm -hmm. Oh man, it's just like sad. Like, uh, I we, I miss Carrie Fisher. Like, we don't know. Fishman. We don't know eight yet. It could be. We could get some degree of that even within eight. Maybe, maybe. I hope so. I really hope so. And you know, I gotta tell you, I think um, no about sort of bringing together this conversation. Like, I really do believe that no matter what it is, the storytellers do. I mean, virtually, they. I feel like they could do anything, and as long as they. Uh, tell it well as long as they present it in such a way for the that the audience can accept i think we as a collective star wars fandom will accept and embrace it uh whether it's kylo's redemption whether it's um hell i'll even say i really don't want this to happen like desperately don't want this to happen if ray happened to turn to the dark side no (laughs) if if that happened if my favorite character you know happened to you know become the villain as long as it was told well, as long in a way that I could respect, then I would eventually get on board with it because, you know, it is really about the mechanism through which it happens, I think. And I really do trust Disney and Lucasfilm and Kathleen Kennedy's leadership. Um, but, you know, I think it is really uh, interesting to discuss, as we've discussed with um, our friend Amy Radcliffe on the Our Politics of Disney episode, um, how do you think Star Wars differs under Disney and Kathleen Kennedy's leadership now, as opposed to George Lucas? I mean, is it diverging from his intended, what he intended for the saga in terms of story and political message? And how do you think the politics of Disney figure into this? Uh, I don't know that he necessarily had a vision for the franchise as a whole, to be honest. I think he had a vision for the saga, for this one story that he wanted to tell. And he told that story and he figured, and he felt like, my, well, my, by and large, he was done with it. I think the interesting thing about the Clone Wars and that was going on is that he got more and more involved in it almost despite of, despite himself. And I think that was... He just found it interesting because the this, this Star Wars universe is an interesting place to tell stories. And he started thinking, well, what if we do a monster movie in Star Wars? And what if we do Kurosawa in Star Wars? And they started doing all these little riffs on other movies and things like that. And mm, I think yeah. that was him. Like He was he had a very heavy hand in, that, in a lot of that stuff. But it was him just sort of noodling around and having a good time. Like, I don't think that he, it wasn't, he wasn't furthering some sort of vision for what Star Wars needs to be, <laughs> which is something that Disney, Disney, the Disney era seems to be a lot about, like what, what is the authentic Star Wars thing and what isn't like the fact that one of the things that they, that got canceled actually after the Disney purchase was the, what was it called? The hyperspace rodeo or some friggin' thing in Disney world. It was what? Kind of thing. I didn't hear about Fans this party thing. I didn't hear about this. What was this? The hyperspace hoedown? Is that what it was called? It was something what? like... What? Ask people on Twitter. If it's something, <laughs> I, I, I've only been to Disney World twice in my life, so I don't know exactly, but it was some kind of weird like dance thing that they had that was Star Wars themed <laughs> in Disney World, and it went away after the purchase. And because I think there was, there was was there was they sat down and they sort of settled their accounts and they said, well, what's... What's, what do we want Star Wars to be going forward? They started, I think that was the first time that anybody actually sat down and looked at Star Wars holistically and said, what is, what are we trying to do as a franchise? What is the message we want to convey? What areas do we want to maximize or highlight versus 
undersell, and I think that's why, like, the Detour Bros cartoon went away, because it was not... I don't think they thought it was bad, maybe. They just thought it wasn't, this isn't what we want to be doing right now. We want to... We want to prepare people psychologically for the possibility of an episode seven, and that was right. that was a big lift. And they didn't they did anything that was not in furtherance of that lift. They decided to set aside. Yeah, I so think. So I think it's yeah. it's not so much that Lucas had one vision and they're changing the vision. I think this is the first time there's been a vision at that level. Like Lucas was just sort of a, it was he was an independent filmmaker. Star Wars mm. is the biggest independent film franchise ever. And right. he ran it that way, and it was totally at his whims, and it wasn't really... He didn't care. Like, look at the EU. There was hundreds yeah. and hundreds of books in the EU. I don't think he... They weren't exercising any vision of his. They did whatever the hell they wanted, and he mostly, like... As long as they didn't do anything super, super crazy, he basically left them alone, because it wasn't... It didn't matter to him. It was outside of his... Even though he owned it, it was outside of his scope of interest. I, I mean, and nowadays, yeah. nothing, is out, nothing is outside Kathleen Kennedy's scope of interest. Like, it's all... It all leads to something right. one way or another. Yeah, totally. There's such a like directed uh, method of control for it, which personally I really appreciate. I, you know, I am also a uh, child of the EU. I, you know, read like uh, dozens and dozens of novels, played so many games. But you know, you said as long as they didn't do anything too crazy, George was okay with it. They did some pretty crazy stuff. <laughs> I, mean, yeah, I mean, you would think, you would think, but, but yeah. I think honestly, this is one of those things. Like I was saying about what is, what is his political message. I think mm-hmm. a lot of this stuff it depends on when you sit him down, what movies and what he says, what he doesn't care about, because some things he let happen that I would never have thought he'd allow. And then other times, like, he wouldn't let, he wouldn't let them kill Luke in the New Jedi Order. He wouldn't let them, oh. he, he asked them to kill, I don't, I don't want to speak too much about this because I forget exactly what we know for sure, but the rumor was that they killed Anakin instead of Jason in the New Jedi Order because they didn't want to have two Anakins at once because the prequels were going on. I forget whether that's, Hearsay, or we actually know that, but I think no. Wait, wait. Like I think that. I think I remember this. This makes a lot of sense. I mean that they that it was originally going to be Jason, but they chose Anakin for some reason. I didn't know, but that answer right there, honestly, that sounds like a very George Lucas answer. <laughs> yeah. I mean, that was that. That tells you everything about how. I mean, I, again, I don't want to make seem matter of factly that that's exactly what happened because that was that was something that was talked about at the moment at the time it was going on. Right. Whether right. or not he actually did that, I forget. I don't want to say that for sure that he did, but yeah, but yeah it's the kind of thing that that's a good illustration of the way that he viewed the books. He didn't want it to conflict with what he was doing, but he didn't care what they did. And mm. he would be happy to use. He would. He was a visual guy. If he saw Ella Sakura on a comic book cover, he would use her because he thought he was a cool design. He didn't worry too much about is this going to make sense with the character that already has been written about because he didn't see it that way. He saw it as plucking this character from an outside universe and bring it into his universe. So it didn't really matter whether they were consistent. It's so, I mean, George Lucas is perhaps, he's the most famous independent filmmaker that's, you know, basically ever lived. He always goes with his own vision. He, um, you know, never like would listen to, I mean, he does listen. He does take advice, particularly during the original trilogy. I personally think, I mean, it's so funny. Like, I don't want to derive or like downplay George. I mean, George Lucas created Star Wars, but I do think that Star Wars maybe has been at its best when it's been a more collaborative process as it was during the original trilogy. Whereas when you have something like the prequels where it's 100% George's vision that you get something that, you know, some people love, but some people also hate. And it's, um, yeah, it's interesting. I don't know. 
may, may I ask you this question? Do you think Star Wars works better as a collaborative process or when there's like one visionary person at the helm? Uh, just your, if, if you, or if you don't have an opinion on that, like what are your thoughts on that? Uh, I wouldn't say better. I would just say different. I think it's mm. a different thing now. Like the force awakens is very, as much as I love it, I like it more than rogue one. I'm so happy with it. I'm like I said, I'm Me thrilled. Too. I was thrilled at how much I responded to these characters. I would never have thought I would be this, we would be this lucky to have characters that we cared this much about, but it's different. It's not, it's not, it's, it's a movie by committee. I'm able right. to, I'm able to love it and still admit that that's what it is. It's very yeah. much like, Calculated in terms of how what's the what's the amount of of uh, nostalgia we need to put into this? What's the amount of cuteness? Like they have BB-8 is there to be the cute thing, and Kylo Ren is there to be the Darth Vader. But it's good. I love it because it's able to to be postmodern about it and sort of engage with the fact that it's nostalgic and that it's not. It's sort of a a manufactured product, and I think it's great. It's a great postmodern Star Wars, and even Rogue One is postmodern in a certain way. They're movies. It's they're both movies about the movies in a way. Yeah, I agree. And it's a good, yeah. it's a different thing. I don't, I don't think it's better or worse. I can't, I can't say, even right now, whether I like The Force Awakens or Rogue One more than any of the original trilogy movies. It's hard to think of them as the same on the same scale. Yeah, they're they're so distinct from each other. I mean, despite those people saying like Force Awakens is a copy of A New Hope, it's an homage, guys. Come on. Um, you know, it's and like it's, telling, it's speaking like it, that's part of the story. It's yeah, about, it's about the fact that it's like a new hope. That's the, that they engage. They don't they don't just do that sloppily. They do that with purpose. And I think we're going to see that, especially with Kylo, we're going to see that purpose explored more. Exactly, I agree a hundred percent, man. Like, um, you know, you actually had a really good piece. I think that relates to um, you know this is the stuff we're talking about right now. It was March third. You wrote. Uh, really great piece called um, You're Allowed to Disagree with Paolo Hidalgo. And, um, you know, it's like while there is like a concrete story here, while there are canon facts and stuff, um, ultimately it is your own story that you're interpreting and, you know, each consumer is different. And even the great canon master Pablo can't ultimately tell you what your own canon is, if that makes sense. Is that what your piece was going for? Like, uh, I... well, do you know why Pablo, why, you, why people think of him as the great canon master? Why? Because he tweets a lot. <laughs> He's no more important than Leland Chi is. He's no more important than Rain Roberts. He's no more important than Matt Martin or Kiri Hart or anybody else. He's just one of the guys on the team, but we know him. He has a huge profile because he, we're familiar with him. He's been around. We think of him as one of us. He used to work for West End Games or one of the role-playing things. Like he's, he's the guy. He's the Star Wars dork that made good, and so we hold him to a high standard because of that. And we hold his words to have more value than that. I think they need to. And that's what that that's more what that piece is about. Is that he's not. He's out. He's on Twitter. He can't help himself. He tries to. He tries to make it about Transformers. <laughs> he can't help himself. He still still answer questions and he'll still butt in with little comments about whatever the news is that day. He'll make fun of clickbait and things like that. And I gotta love him for it. But yeah, that's just a guy. He's just a guy sharing his opinions. And when he does answer questions, you notice people don't talk about this, but he always always says like, if he actually expresses, makes if he actually declares that such and such is going on in a scene, he'll he won't just say this is official. That's what happens. He always colors it with. I always thought. 
such and such, or it seems right. to me that dot dot dot. He'll he'll always put it as this is just my take on it. Yeah, yeah. No, that's so, people take yeah. people people ignore that and they say, they run to Wikipedia and they say, okay, this is it. This is officially what happened. <laughs> and I think it's better to it's better for us to get to a point where like. I can imagine it's frustrating from the point of view of a Wikipedian because if he says mm. if he says something is canon, then it's reasonable to think that's going to be the case. But at the same time, if it's not in published material, it could yet change. Like, even if he thinks just because he thinks something now, or just because he tweets about it now, doesn't mean that in a year they might change their mind. If a better idea comes along for a movie that contradicts what he says, they'll contradict him because right. he's not he's not canon. <laughs> People want him to be canon. People want everything out of his mouth to be Bible, and it's just not. Um, That's all he wants to do. He wants, just like we do, he wants to come on Twitter and just sort of joke around and make fun of things and make fun of Dash Rendar and stuff like that. And he can't do it. He wants to do it, and people try to make it into something it's not. (laughs) I will let you... That's what the piece is about. But the piece was not even... I mean, I could... I could wax philosophical about continuity and canon. I think his tweet tweet thread from a couple weeks ago about... what, what, What really about canon just being a broad strokes thing, the idea that... All Kevin really says is that Han and Greedo sat down and, and Han walked away, and exactly who shot first is subjective. And the idea that canon doesn't de- get into the exact details of things because you can't really do that because Star Wars. Yeah, I is, saw that. Yeah. Star Wars is a very adaptive medium. There's 10,000 versions of that story already. Like, there's not only are there multiple versions of the movie, but there are different short stories that, that cover that event. And there's going to be, it's probably going to be in the new short story in the, what is it, certain point of view that's coming out. There's going to be another version of that. Yeah, and I th- that's, and so his point is that it's not people want the exact details to be canon. And I think exact details will never be canon because there's always going to be little differences from medium to medium. Because the way of telling one a story in one medium is not going to be the best way to tell it in another medium. And it's better to tailor the details to suit the the format than to, than to be strictly literal about every single little thing that happens. Totally, totally, I agree, and uh, I just love. Yeah. That's what I would say about canon, but the piece, the the other mm-hmm. I have to disagree with him is more about don't take him so seriously. He yeah. doesn't want it, and it's not good for anybody. Right. Because what I, what I was seeing at that time, the thing that I that spurned that piece was I was he had been he had gone on a dash around our tear recently. <laughs> and, you know, I saw a lot of people who were like my my sort of EU generation going, oh, I'm not. I feel like I'm a bad person because I like Shadows of the Empire now. I, I didn't realize that I was not wanted in the Star Wars fandom because I like Dash Rendar. It's fine. You're allowed You're allowed to have your opinion. He's allowed to have his opinion. That's the extent of it. Yeah, I'm wondering if, honestly, I'm wondering if in the politics of Lucasfilm, if there's, like, talk about, you know, they're telling Top Pablo, hey, man, you know, like, Tone it down, maybe. <laughs> like you know, maybe they don't need to take what you're saying so seriously. I, res- I respect that they allow him to do it. Like, I yeah, mean, you could, there's a version of this. For, like, I mean, look what some of the actors have gone through when they when the movies were coming out. Like, oh my uh, god, yeah. Oh my her god, Instagram. her Instagram, yeah. Like, like, we were talking about this on the show. Like, she, um, like, literally just said, "Hey, we need to stop gun violence." And People, I'm going on a little rant here for a second. People immediately thought she was calling for gun control, that she was advocating specific legislation here in the States or something. It's just like, no, guys. She just says this wasn't a political statement. She was just saying, hey, let's try to lower gun violence. <laughs> Is that and it's funny because Pablo will say political stuff once in a while. He's not a yeah. Trump folk. But he right. seem to, I mean, I don't know. I don't, follow, I don't read his mentions, but... It doesn't seem like he gets much of a pushback on political stuff, but he gets pushed back on Boba Fett and Dash Rendar. 
in Starkiller Base. Like those are the things that people freak out about. Those are those are the only things that matter, right? Yeah, those are the only things that are going to affect your lives, right? <laughs> um, but actually, you know, to t- touch upon that really quick, I think. I just want to like, uh, you know, going and talking about Twitter and like engagement with Pablo and others online, you know, I f- feel like in my foray into, you know, Star Wars social media and like, uh, you know, the fan community, really, I've noticed that, you know, politics, I mean, as it would in any other medium, I feel, because politics is pervasive throughout all of our lives and all fandoms and all aspects of our lives you know, the politics is strong with the Star Wars fan community, with the fandom. And there are political issues that we discuss as fans, like diversity, inclusion, feminism, um, you know, whether you can make an allegory with Trump and Palpatine. And, um, you know, I think we saw this, especially after the election and with the release of Force Awakens and Rogue One, Um, you know, people saying that the films are calling for resistance or for rebellion. So um, I guess like, uh, how do you find in your experience uh, online that Star Wars, uh, that politics enters into the Star Wars fan community? Uh, Well, I mean, like I said, everybody, everybody can find the messages that they want to agree with in it. So I think that's, it's pretty broad in terms of what, what? How much? I don't think I don't think liberal fans talk about it more than conservative fans or anything like that. But it's been interesting. Specifically, the, one of the one of our main sort of recurring topics has been diversity. It's something that I even before I did eleven thirty eight, it was something that I talked and wrote a lot about at the in the Jedi Council forums, just as a poster there. And there was a we did a piece after the election the first I was I would believe me I, I had to use every every muscle in my body not to write some kind of like what Star Wars teaches us about Trump in that first month like I right. wanted so badly to say something about it and my platform that I had and I had to stop myself and the one the the, far, the first political concession I made at 1130 was we did a piece about Rogue One and is the Empire a white supremacist organization mm-hmm. yeah like Chris and, Chris Bites one of the writers of Rogue One tweeted that out yeah, that was it. Was it was it was a response to that tweet in a way, but that tweet was really just an excuse because it was something that we've talked about mm. a lot, especially Jay Shaw and I, who is a big Empire booster in a certain from a certain <laughs> point of view. Right. He has very he has even stronger opinions about this than I do, and he's the one that kind of brought he kind of brought me along to his way of thinking to yeah. a great extent on diversity in the Empire because it's very easy to think well, they're the bad guys, and therefore any possible bad trait they must have, but. One of the one of the stronger things I think of the of the of the new canon is that it's really really di- dived into the empire as a group of people, and we see a lot of different versions of what the average imperial looks like. We saw Cianuri in Lost Towers, who sort of was very conflicted. She had a moral core to her. She saw the Death Star and Alderaan and realized it was a bad thing, but she still believed it was for the greater good. And right now, I'm reading Inferno Squad, which is kind of a similar story, but very different in that. Um, Iden Versio is all about it. She's like, oh, screw all wrong, whatever. That's what they got. <laughs> yeah. But at the same time, though, you're rooting for them because she's yeah. the protagonist. But I think Star Wars is doing a great job these days at distinguishing between the protagonist and the hero. Like, I don't, I think you can tell yes. a story about Imperials and about the Empire broadly without rooting for them, without it, it's saying that this is fine because the Empire, the Empire can't be all evil it just can't the empire like the first order i would make a distinction the first order is like an, is an extremist group because mm-hmm. it, it's much smaller 
it's like the hardcorest of the hardcore. But the empire is the government. It was the duly elected government, as Jay would be happy to point out. Like they, <laughs> the system created this. Palpatine didn't create the empire. The system created the empire. Right. And the system is made of average average people, and the average people, just like in the real world, are a range have a range of, of opinions, and they're not all good and they're not all bad. I'm sure there were people within the empire who were super super progressive, and I mean, look at Bail Organa. Bail Organa existed within the empire for almost two decades. I mean, without, he without he was doing the rebellion out. at the same time, though. Yeah, but I mean, I'm saying to the to the point of view of an average person, he was. Oh yeah, yeah. He was able he was able to be himself and not and not get arrested, basically. He was able to... He was still... Because he would... Like, the mercy missions that they talk about in the first movie, he was able to conduct himself sort of as a relief... as a relief operator and help and help refugees and help people that had been devastated by the Empire but right. not go so far over the line that they had to crack down on him. And I think that there were probably a lot of people in the Empire who didn't necessarily have the resources or the wherewithal to, to full-out rebel but would do what they could within their local neighborhood or whatever to, to help out people in need. Like, there were still good... There were good people and there were bad people under any, any government. And I think the empire... The difference between the empire and the New Republic is the empire encouraged the bad people. Mm. But there weren't there weren't more of them. Yeah. Yeah, I, I, lo- I love that point right there that, um, you know, you have good and bad people in all um, systems of government that it really depends on the um, aspects that you're going to cultivate in there for the empire. It was these brutes. It was these, you know, essentially bullies, these, you know, people who were willing to commit genocide really. And um, in the, you know, the Republic was obviously miles better, but still harbored those unsavory elements that eventually led it to become the empire. As you said, it was the system that made the empire, not, our beloved Uncle Palfy. <laughs> uh, um, but he yeah, helped, he helped a little. He helped a little. He helped a little. One thing I like to say a lot, I always make this. This is more. This is something I'm, a point I make more with regard to the old Jedi Order and mm-hmm. their problems. But I always say that if if Palpatine had been hit by a bus the day before uh, Attack of the Clones happened, that wouldn't have made everything fine. Like, right. There still could have been a war. The right. Jedi were still totally messed up. Right. Anakin, Anakin still might have turned for some other reason. Like. He, the Sith broadly were able to foster corruption over the course of a thousand years and were able to encourage the bad, the bad stuff and discourage the good stuff. But if he, if he goes away, that doesn't make everything fine. The system was the problem. Mm, the system was the problem. Up That's a real correct. Yes, absolutely. They were part of that system. And yeah, this is a, uh, no, it's just, uh, again, man, I just like love talking about this so much because you uncover layers upon layers upon layers of content to talk about. And there's as much as you want. Like it's great because it can be superficial. You can be, you can be six years old and just like shooting lasers and lightsabers and stuff like that. (laughs) And that's fine. And I think that's the, that's sort of what it's for. Like if I had to choose between what we're talking about and the six year old version of Star Wars, it's more for the six year olds. Right. But what I love about it is that, you can be an adult and still the more the more you choose to look at it, the more you can find things like this. It's all it, it, it's every bit as complex as you want it to be. hundred percent. And I think that is a very good note to end our interview on. We are running up against time, but Mike, this has been a really fantastic and deep diving discussion. Thank you so, so much for coming on to the show. Sure. I'm happy to be here. Uh, where can people find you online and where can, you know, tell us a bit more about 1138 and, you know, what they should uh, keep their eyes peeled for. 
to spell out the website is exhausting, but it's 1138writtenout.com with a, with a hyphen after the 11. And on Twitter, it's 1138, no hyphen, and with A-T-E instead of E-I-G-H-T. But honestly, you just, if, you just, if you just Google 1138 spelled out, you could probably find it. I'm easy to... I'm, I'm a, Mike Cooper is a very ungoogleable name, but if you Google Mike Cooper Star Wars, you can pretty much find anything that I'm involved in. That's the easiest way to put it. But my personal my personal Twitter that we discussed earlier is at knowtheotherleft if you want to know what I think about Trump and stuff like that. <laughs> I would say a third of my brain is Star Wars. That's the 1138 account. And the other two-thirds are comic books and politics. And the other two-thirds are on the other account. Brilliant, brilliant. And if you are, if you ever, if you do have, a lot of people still have old accounts at the Jedi Council forums that they dig up once in a while. If you go to the literature forum, I'm something, I'm, I'm there fairly regularly as well. That's where, that's sort of where I cut my teeth and where a lot of the 1138 contributors came from and how I got to know them, including Jay Shah in particular. That's awesome, man. Like, uh, yeah, everyone, please go check out uh, theforceboard.net, uh, 1138, and everything else that Mike is involved in. It's all really fantastic work. And, you know, if you like uh, the discussions here on Beltway Banthas, you get that on 1138 in spades. So highly recommend you all check it out. So thank you so much. That'll do it for this interview episode of Beltway Banthas. And may the force be with you guys always. Laugh it up, fuzzball.